Good day and welcome to the 5-Day Reading Plan podcast. I'm Lance Ward and I'll be walking us through some of the highlights of this week's readings. And don't forget, you can download a copy of this reading plan in the description of this podcast or you can go to 5daybiblereading.com. Well, this is week 39. We're, if you're reading this according to the calendar, we're approaching the end of September. And this week's readings are Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah 1 through 10, Psalms 74, 75, 130, and 2 Corinthians 7 through 11. Well, if you're reading through the Bible for the first time, maybe you've never read some of the minor prophets in their entirety, especially Habakkuk and Zephaniah. At the same time, though, you probably have heard Habakkuk quoted before. As Paul opens the marvelous book of Romans, for example, where he argues for justification by faith alone, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 as his foundational verse. The just or the righteous one will live by faith. If I remember correctly, it was this verse that ignited a spark in Martin Luther's mind and soul, which turned into a blazing fire of the Reformation. It also demonstrates once again that the Bible is not a collection of disjointed books, but a redemption story with common threads that run through it. And if you've been in church long enough, you've probably heard the last few verses of Habakkuk quoted, where the prophet knows of the horrors that are coming, but sets his heart to trust God and his plan, even if everything around him is about to fall apart and and just seem like it's hopeless. I noted one other thing in this year's reading— how the book begins. In 1, 1 through 4, the prophet pours out an honest lament to the Lord who seems to have disappeared into silence. It's a feeling many of us have at one time or another. Injustice rules the day and wrongdoing grows out of control. And in those times, we might wonder, God, where are you? But in such a time for Habakkuk, keep in mind that he doesn't abandon God. He talks to him. In these turbulent times of the American church, we seem to be hearing more stories of so-called deconversions, many of which seem to spring out of a disappointment with God. Habakkuk does not abandon God in his frustration, though. He, He talks to him. He runs to God. He seeks answers from God, and he runs toward him, not away from him. His unanswered questions and constant frustrations do not cause him to punt his faith. They prompt him to run to God even more deeply even if it means expressions of severe lament. So Habakkuk is a very instructive book. Zephaniah writes in the good years of Josiah's reign, but he speaks of hard times to come after Josiah dies. As God's people were wont to do, they would soon go back to their old ways. I noticed that Zephaniah, by the way, and Psalm 74 are excellent companions. Just another reason why I'm so thankful for the thoughtfulness of this reading plan and those who created it. As is God's custom, on the heels of impending judgment, though, he sends Zephaniah with promises of hope. He will not abandon everyone, but will preserve a remnant. And from this section arises one of my favorite passages of comfort, which was not only true of those who kept the faith, but true of us as well, as we trust in Christ and his promises to come. It goes this way, The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. This marvelous statement is followed by glorious promises to come, listed in Zephaniah's final verses. 
I don't know about you, but when I read of all that God's people did and the way they so easily abandoned him and disregarded his covenants over and over, I'm amazed at how God not only renders just judgment, but always preserves an undeserving remnant and showers them with grace and outlandish promises. It truly doesn't make sense for God to be this gracious. And that is maybe why we can say, as we read in Isaiah a few weeks ago, there is no God like the one and only God. We started the lengthy book of Jeremiah this week, and we've got to be in that for the long haul. It's a long one. And we noticed uh, that Jeremiah starts, much like Moses, a reluctant prophet who lacks confidence and experience. Nevertheless, the Lord reminds him not only of his plan, which began before Jeremiah was born, but also his assured presence with Jeremiah as Jeremiah would serve. You, you probably are seeing this right off the bat, but Jeremiah is a sad and brutal book because most of his words, which come directly from God, will fall on deaf, mocking, and even abusive ears. This long prophetic work will be supplemented by Jeremiah's only other book, Lamentations, which we will read near the end of our Jeremiah reading. As you read through this book, take note of the hard things God has him say and his resulting laments, not only from his hard calling, but especially from witnessing the hardness of heart manifested in God's people. The first notable one you saw this week was chapter 4, verses 19 through 26, and the second was chapter 8, 18 through chapter 9, verse 6. One thing Jeremiah shows us is that when we are following hard after God, we are sure to face heartbreak as we watch those around us ignore him and turn away from him. So pay close attention to the agony of his lament and remember it as, a, as sort of a normal aspect of walking closely with God and speaking for God. Also, mark all references in this book to the stubbornness and rebellion of God's people. As in past prophets, mark every time God is identified as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies. This is a major moniker for God in Isaiah and Jeremiah. It is meant to remind them and us that it is vain to go against the mighty God, made clear also in this week's reading of Psalm 75. While Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Jeremiah's cry might be, if God is against us, who can be for us? Few places are this more evident than God's words in chapter 7, verse 16, where he says to Jeremiah, Do not pray for these people. Do not offer a cry or prayer on their behalf, and do not beg me, for I will not listen to you. Whew, wow. You can see why I am tempted to label several sections of this book as the point of no return. Did you notice, by the way, how Jesus quoted Jeremiah 7, 11 when he was clearing the temple? And like Jeremiah, Jesus also looked upon Jerusalem in his own ministry and wept at the disobedience of so many. 2 Corinthians 7, 9-13 provides a significant contrast between godly and worldly sorrow, also helping us understand what repentance truly is. Verse 10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces only death. In other words, being sorry about our sin is not repentance, but a precursor to that. What matters most is what comes next, a turning away from sin or a return right back to it. 
Paul knows the Corinthians have experienced a godly sorrow and have thus repented because of how their hearts turned and produced visible manifestations of it, as you see in verses 11 through 13. Repentance, we see, comes from the right kind of sorrow and involves a turning and a going in a new and better direction. And it is a beautiful thing when it happens. A lot of the times we hear the word repentance and we think it's a bad word. No, it's actually a beautiful word. One of the hardest things for a pastor to do, by the way, is to talk about money and giving. This is especially true in an affluent culture, ironically. In 2 Corinthians 8 through 9, though, Paul does not offer any apologies for challenging the Corinthians to excel in giving just as much as they are excelling in other things like faith and speech and knowledge and diligence and brotherly love. In doing so, he removes excuses for not giving and also seeks to motivate the church on the blessing giving is, not just to the receiver, but especially to the giver. As Paul commends the generosity of the Macedonian churches, one point is clear. Generosity does not arise out of overflowing income, but overflowing grace. The Macedonians' giving was a paradox of abundant joy and extreme poverty. And so they gave, as, quote, as Paul says, beyond their ability of their own accord. Our own Pastor Marty Grubbs said this a few weeks ago when, in a sermon on giving when he says, A lot of us live between the fear of not having enough and the desire for more than we need. Guilty as charged, I'm afraid, on many occasions. But in this text, that was not the case for the Macedonian churches. When you are motivated by God's generosity to you in Christ, the one who made himself poor, that we might become spiritually rich, what replaces fear is grace. Notice here Paul does not say, give that you may grow rich. It's more like, give out of grace that you may experience more grace. This is not the prosperity gospel. It, it is a promise that with generous pocketbooks come generous hearts. Out of tangible grace, in other words, flows greater internal grace. It is the promise that you won't die if you become more generous. You will simply experience the living waters of true life abundantly. I thought about this, though, in this alarming statistic from Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, when he says this, the average church member only gives 2 to 3% of his or her income. That's the average church attender. That means there's a lot of people who darken the doors of the church almost every week and likely give nothing. While we may sing with gusto, raise our hands, and dance in the aisles, take copious notes, volunteer in key ministries, if we are not generous with our possessions, we are not only withholding our full selves from God, we're really missing out on a grace that puts the icing on the cake of our grace and salvation. When I think of this, I think of John Wesley's own attitude towards money. He wanted to give as much to God's kingdom as possible. So at a time when he found himself clinging tightly to his stuff, he decided that he would keep only what he and his family needed to live on. Anything outside of that, he would give to God and his kingdom. So when he began, their cost of living was 28 pounds. That year, he brought in 30 pounds, so he gave two pounds away. Three years in, his income went up to 90 pounds. Well, he still kept only 28 and gave away 62. Several years later, his cost of living went up to slightly 30 pounds, but he made over 1,400 that year, so he gave 1,370 pounds away. 
When Wesley died, it is said that he gave away most of the 30,000 pounds he had made in life. In light of this example, in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, let me ask you a question. What if instead of getting wrapped up in percentages or asking whether you should give from net or gross, what if we all set in our sights to make giving toward the kingdom of God the boldest category in our budgets? What if you said to yourself, you know, by the time I reach such and such an age, I want to be giving more to God's kingdom than I am to my own. I want it to exceed my housing expenses or my car payments or my food budget or my vacation fund. Of course, this is not commanded in Scripture, but you can imagine the kind of well done we might hear when Jesus says to you, like me, you gave up your comforts for the salvation of others. Like me, you sacrificed what you could have had for the sake of my kingdom. No matter what we resolve specifically, let us all consider the great grace we will enjoy when we open our hands and exchange the things that won't last for the things that truly will. Let us imitate the Macedonian churches whose lives gave tangible evidence of their faith. And let us never think of generosity as an option. There may be no more tangible evidence of faith than the joyful exchange of stuff that won't last for stuff that will last forever. So think about that, and that does it for this week. Next week, we will read different chapters in Jeremiah, and I want to give an explanation real quickly after I read them. Jeremiah 11 through 20, chapter 22, chapter 23, 26, then we'll go back to chapter 25, then we'll go to chapter 35, and then 36, and I'll explain this in just a moment. We'll also go to Psalm 76, 77, and 133. We'll finish 2 Corinthians, and we'll read the first three chapters of James. Now, in our Jeremiah reading next week, you'll notice that sometimes the readings from here on out are going to be a little out of order because Jeremiah seems to skip around chronologically in his writings. Scholars have discussed and debated why this is, but for now, just know that what this reading plan is trying to do is to keep things in chronological order as best it can. It's just easier to follow the book that way. So again, I'm thankful for this plan because it will help us understand the book better if we read the chronological order. And so you'll notice that next week if you had any questions. So we will talk to you then. Until then, have a great week reading God's Word.